Well, what a undeserved privilege to be singing together as part of the ransomed bride of the Lamb. What a great concept, and I trust this series that we've been doing on why we come to church has, has made us all more grateful that uh, we get to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. There, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that we will be a part of in this lifetime more precious, more significant than being a part of the body of Christ. And uh, we know that everything is heading in that direction where Christ is going to come, right, to receive us as his bride. And uh, we await that day. And we um, wrapped up this summer series that we were doing last week. And I've been, as I mentioned, I've been thinking and praying about where to go next in our uh, time in God's Word on Sunday mornings. This is uh, the most significant time we have together as, as this local church is our Sunday morning gathering where we open the Word together and have God speak to us. And so to me, it's always a, a, a huge decision about what book we go through because it will, it will capture our hearts and our minds for weeks, months, even years and uh, really set the course and the direction and set the tone for uh, the life of our church. And so I always want to choose very carefully where we uh, spend time in God's Word. And so as I've been thinking and praying and reading, uh, I mentioned, I think, earlier that the book that God's laid on my heart is the book of Philippians, a book I think I need to be hearing right now, I need to be meditating on and thinking of. And uh, the book of Philippians is a beloved letter Probably if, I was, if we were to survey everyone in our church, what was your, uh, what's your favorite uh, Pauline epistle letter that Paul wrote? Survey says uh, Philippians would have to be up there in the top three or four uh, books. It's just a, just a rich, rich um, expression of Paul's heart that to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a great uh, testimony. And so I'm excited to start that. In a few weeks, I've got uh, a little challenge, though, because I'm going to be out of town next week and, uh, and then three weeks from now, and so I've got this little thing in the middle, and what do I do? I don't want to start this book, and so I was talking to the elders about it, and they were very gracious to, to encourage me just to take some time uh, out of the pulpit for the next three weeks and get ready to preach Philippians in the, starting off in October. And uh, hopefully it give me time to get my mind around that book and, and just do an excellent job of explaining it and applying it and uh, take advantage of the fact we got some new horses in the barn and uh, we're going to harness them up, Chris and Kyle. And uh, so Chris is going to be preaching the next two Sundays and then Kyle's going to preach the first Sunday in October. So I'm excited about the opportunity for these guys to handle the word and and uh, for you to be encouraged to get to know these guys and these men that God has so richly blessed our church with, and uh, there's no better way to get to know a guy's heart than to, to have him preach. And so I'm excited uh, for you to, to hear these men, and I appreciate your prayers as I, again, focus in on this uh, great epistle of Philippians and um, just catch my breath a bit and um, hopefully come back with a second wind uh, to tackle uh, our next um, exposition. Well, I did say last week that I wanted to say some things this week that 
I trust will serve as a practical afterword or appendix or appendum, uh, appendium to our series on why we come to church. And I was just thinking about this, and it was kind of building in the back of my mind as I was teaching through this series this summer. Um, two things that every one of us has had to deal with when it comes to church, uh, both of which can be very difficult and challenging and frustrating and painful and even heartbreaking. I'm referring to finding and leaving a church. I'm curious, has anybody ever heard a message preached on finding and leaving a church? Anybody heard a message preached on finding and leaving a church? Okay, we got a handful of people. They were kind of embarrassed to admit it. Like, why would you be embarrassed about that? Uh, There's some really good resources in print. A lot of good books have a chapter on finding a church or not so many on how to leave a church, but um, I think it's an important subject to deal with because all of us has had to do it at some point, and it's simply not an experience that any of us look forward to or enjoy. Uh, it's just not. It's, 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 it's difficult. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge, and few decisions that we make have a greater effect on us and our families in this life and the life to come than what church we choose to attend. There's a lot at stake in this important decision. Now again, I've never heard a sermon on either of these sobering issues, and so today I want to just talk with you and, and, and really take all that we've been learning about the church and show you how to practically apply that when you find yourself in that awkward, unenviable position of having to find or leave a church. Over the years, we've had quite a few individuals and couples and families who had to move to another part of the state or country because of a job transfer or to go to college or seminary or to be closer to family or any other reasons, and they had to find a new church. And so we did our best to help them uh, scour the area where they were moving and, and uh, make some suggestions, some recommendations. Um, we've also had many others move into this area and uh, for similar reasons and begin attending and eventually join Lakeside Bible Church. And, and, and like every church, we have had people leave our church for a variety of other reasons as well, some good and some bad. So it's happening all the time. People are always coming and going and the analogy that I've often uh, reminded myself of to not to just to stay focused and not be discouraged necessarily when uh, in, in light of all the transition that typically takes place in the life of any church is is that we're a ship and I'm like the captain and I've got the you know I'm I've got the compass and we're headed due north and and so we're just going and this is where God has called us to go and this is what His Word tells us to do and the whole time we're heading toward towards our destination you've got people climbing on board and you've got people jumping overboard, and it's just the way it is. That's the life, life in the church, and you just hope that nobody ever finds a lifeboat and a whole bunch of people go over the board, go off the side together, right? Uh, that's what you hope, that that never happens, but that does happen, unfortunately, in, in some churches. But the point is, you just need to get used to it. I know sometimes it, it can be uh, disillusioning, it can be frustrating. As you, as a member, look around and go, hey, where's so-and-so, or you know, why aren't they here anymore? And and, and, uh, and then, but at the same time, you look across the aisle and like, who are they? I've never seen them before. They're new to the church. Get used to it. 
that's just the way life is, and we just need to be faithful. And that's what God's called us to do, is just to be faithful. And uh, God will bring who he wants to bring, right? And he'll send out those he wants to send out. And so this morning, I just want to address these two subjects. First of all, finding a good church, and then secondly, leaving a bad church. Finding a good church and leaving a bad church. Let's talk about finding a good church. We've all had to do it at one time or another. Some of us even multiple times. We call it church hopping, church hunting, shopping for a church, which nobody really enjoys. Um, shopping for a church is like shopping for a car, right? It's a necessary evil in some ways you think about, and you have this set of criteria and that this list usually includes non-negotiables and, and, and also preferences. And so if you're wanting to buy a car, you think, okay, the price is important and the mileage is important and the color and the make and the body style. These are all criteria for deciding which car you're going to buy. And with so many churches to choose from these days, uh, it can be difficult to decide which one to attend with your family. A lot of people base their decision on things like a church's location. It's convenient to where we live. It has attractive facilities. It's a beautiful uh, place to go. It has good programs and activities for children or for students. Uh, uh, it's a, it has a friendly atmosphere. I, I like the music. You know, all of these are criteria that some use to make a decision, but, but these are all secondary considerations. Joshua Harris uh, has written a very helpful book called Why Church Matters, and uh, he's got a chapter called Choosing Your Church. In fact, I photocopied that chapter on numerous occasions and handed it to someone who was visiting our church, and they were in that phase of trying to find a church. And I said, hey, read this, this chapter, Choosing Your Church. It's a very helpful, gives you 10 little questions, 10 simple questions to ask yourself whether or not this is a good church to join. And this is what he says in that book. He says, quote, we need two different lists when it comes to selecting a church, a must-have list and a that-would-be-nice list. A must-have list, and oh, that would be nice if that was true as well. Well, you can deal with the that would be nice stuff. I don't want to get into that because that's all preferences, right? And we, we would all be different as far as the things we prefer. We would, we would, it would be nice if our church had that or didn't have that. But I want to suggest some must-have biblical standards. These are, these are things you should have on your must-have list. These are priorities to consider when choosing a church. These are the things that matter most when you're looking for a church to plug into. These are, these are five things. I want to give you five things to look for in a church. Five things to look for in a church. Number one, the members are genuinely and discernibly saved. The members are genuinely and discerningly saved. Now, we're going to look at a couple of verses to see where I'm coming, with, coming from with these principles. And you can look at these verses with me as well. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said this to his disciples, So then you will know them by their what? By their fruits. And then he goes on and says what I believe is the scariest words that ever came out of the mouth of Jesus. 
Verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What, is, what was Jesus saying there? Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who spends time going to church and even serving in the church will go to heaven. It's a sobering thought. Notice Acts chapter 2, verse 41. The early church, this is the first reference we have to the, the original church. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, so then those who had received his word, heard the message, the gospel message from Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. In other words, 3,000 people had heard the gospel, received the gospel, and were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. In other words, you have, talk about a, a, a church launch, right? That'd be a kind of a cool church plant. You have like 3,000 people your first Sunday. But that's what happened. And it says, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and prayer. Who's they? It's the apostles and, and the, the 120 people that were in the upper room who had, had received Christ and were waiting for the Spirit to come. But then now it also included these 3,000 new believers. And so the early church was made up entirely of true converts. They had clearly turned from their sin to follow and obey Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they were publicly affirmed by being baptized. And I think the great tragedy today is that churches are filled with people who think they're saved, but they're really not. They've made a, maybe they made a profession of faith in Christ, they, they prayed some prayer, they walked an aisle, they signed a card... They went through the motions, they maybe even got baptized, but there's no evidence in their lives to prove that they're truly saved. Listen, just because you're a member of a local church doesn't mean you're a Christian necessarily. There's countless people in hell right now who went to church their entire lives, but they were never truly born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. And so I think the most important distinctive of a, of a good church is it's made up of people who've been genuinely saved by the grace of God, which is evidenced by the transforming, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This is the most important ingredient to look for in a church. Several years ago, I was, uh, received a phone call from a man who was part of a search committee in, in a local church in our area. And they were in between pastors and they were looking for a pastor. And, and yet they, the same, it gave them a chance to kind of sit back and pause and, and, and do some introspection and, and ask themselves, why is our church doesn't seem to be going anywhere? It seems to be spinning its wheels and we keep going through pastors and we look around and we see other churches growing and thriving. And he was very gracious and said, Ken, we've looked around at all the churches. We even visited your church and we feel like 
you know, of all the churches we look at, it seems like God's blessing what you're doing, and, and uh, you know, people are excited about being there, and you're building buildings, and, and, and what, what, what do you attribute that to? And I thanked him for being so kind to ask me that question, and so the very first thing I said to him is, I think it all starts with a truly regenerate membership, that you need to have people come into your church who are truly saved. That's where it starts. And then, of course, there's a lot of other things that need to be true as well, but it, it all starts with people who are truly born again. See, nothing hinders a church's effectiveness more than having a bunch of unsaved people in it. And there's lots of churches today that are filled with what we've termed here before unsaved believers. Are you familiar with that expression, unsaved Believers, these are people who think they're saved, who act like they're saved, they talk like they're saved, but they're not truly saved. You say, do you believe in Jesus? Absolutely, they believe in Jesus. But they never truly repented of their sin. They never truly trusted Christ. We know this is true. Jesus warned us of this in the parable of the wheat and the tares. That as the, as the field was growing, Satan would come, the would come and he would sow weeds among the wheat. And it was hard to distinguish between the two. And uh, that's just the ongoing work of Satan in the life of the church. And so we are always working hard as, 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 um, as elders and as pastors to, to guard against Satan's attempts to produce an unregenerate membership here at Lakeside Bible Church to sow weeds among the wheat. Now, don't get me wrong. We want unsaved people to come to Lakeside Bible Church. We just don't want unsaved people to join Lakeside Bible Church. Big difference. We want to see them get saved and become members of the church. And that's why we have some barriers in our membership process to do our very best as humanly possible to weed out unbelievers, again, as best we can. We have a membership application where they have to share their testimony. People write out their testimony and tell us how they came to know Christ. And, and uh, there's also some questions that we ask them just to give them an opportunity to articulate the gospel. If somebody asks you, what, do I, what does it mean to be a Christian and how can I become one? We want to see them be able to articulate the gospel. And uh, if, if, if you were to die today, do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven? Why are, what are you trusting in for your salvation? Is it your good works? Is it because you come to church? Is it because you're a nice guy? What is it you're trusting in for your salvation? We try to discern a person's heart as best we can. Then we also have an interview. We, a couple of the elders or pastors will interview them and, again, talk through their testimony and, and give them a chance to ask any questions. And, and, in fact, our first class, membership, those of you that have been through membership class, you'll remember this, the very first class before we ever talk about becoming a member of the church, is what it means to be a Christian. And that's where we start. That's class number one is Christianity 101. And in fact, we used to have a class before Life at Lakeside. It was called Life in Christ. And it was a four-week class just talking about the gospel and what does it mean to be a Christian before anyone was allowed. It was a prerequisite before they could go into Life at Lakeside. Why did we do that? Because we wanted to make sure, as best we could, that people knew for sure we wanted to know for sure that they knew for sure that they were Christians and they were on their way to heaven. Now, some of this might be making some of you nervous or thinking, wait a minute, how, what makes you think that you can tell whether or not someone's truly saved? 
Come on, only God knows a person's heart. Who, who made you or anyone else the judge of someone else's salvation? Well, I'll be the first to admit that only God can see what's in a person's heart. And I know that we will be surprised to see certain people in heaven that we didn't think were going to be there, and we are going to be shocked when we don't see certain people in heaven that we assume we're going to be there. But I would say this, Paul said he knew the Thessalonians were truly saved. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, verse 3, starting in verse 3, he's thanking God for them and he's saying how how you're constantly bearing, I was constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus and the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. I know that you were chosen by God. Talk about even taking it to the next level. I mean, he's saying, I know you were one of God's elect. How does he know that? How, Paul, how, how can you know if someone has been chosen by God for salvation. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In other words, I saw the fruit. There was a knowledge, he says, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. There was a, this didn't come by revelation or to intuition as a pastor, but by observation. Paul said it was plain to see, it was, it was obvious, it was discernible. Paul saw certain evidences and, and fruits in the lives of these people that convinced him that they had been genuinely saved. And so the first criteria to find a good church is to, to make sure the members are genuinely and discernibly saved. Secondly, the gospel is accurately and unashamedly proclaimed. The gospel is accurately and unashamedly proclaimed. The word gospel is used by Christ himself in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. This is Mark's rendition, if you will, of the Great Commission. Mark 16, 15, And Jesus said to them, his disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Paul in Romans chapter 116, Romans 116, Paul said this. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You say, Well, what's the gospel? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul articulates the gospel. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And so we understand the, a gospel, an accurate gospel message includes at least four essential elements. It's a message about God and who he is. It's a message about man and who we are. It's a message about Christ and what he's done for us. And it's a message about what God requires of us. It's a, it's a call to repent and believe in him. And the 
gospel presentation that we have on our website, that we have in our little welcome booklet that some of you maybe took this morning as a new visitor, um, the, the gospel presentation that we train and equip our, our short-term missions teams to go out and present the gospel, it, it, is, it is four simple points. God, man, Jesus, you. There is a God who deserves to be glorified. Man refuses to glorify God and deserves to be punished by death and hell. Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead so we can be saved from God's wrath against our sin. And then finally, the command to repent and believe in Jesus Christ must be obeyed. That's a simple presentation of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. In other words, that's where we come up with the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that we're saved not by anything we do. We're not saved by works. We're saved by the work of Christ on our behalf. And we need to put our trust and faith in His work alone for our salvation. And so you have to be careful when you look at a church, you need to make sure that they don't add to the gospel. That they don't say you need to be, you know, in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus Christ and live a life of good works. And you have to do this. You need to get baptized. You need to do this. And you need to perform this. And you need to do one of these and then a few of these. And no, salvation is by grace through faith alone, Period. We're saved, as Luther said, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saved is never alone. I love that statement. In other words, we're not saved by works, we're saved for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them, right? So a good church is committed to the biblical gospel that says man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to to Scripture alone for God's glory alone. And Paul told the the churches in Galatia to run from anybody who preached a different gospel. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. He is to be accursed, as we have said before. So I say again now, if a man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So if a church is not preaching the biblical gospel, according to Paul, they are cursed by God. It's definitely a church you'd want to avoid. You wouldn't want to come under that curse. I'll never forget getting a phone call from England years ago. One of our dear families had a job transfer and they had to move to uh, Great Britain. And they had landed in, in England and they had the hardest time finding a good church. And so this guy called me and said, Ken, I, I, I'm going to this church and I'm not sure if this is a, the right church for our family. What, what, what would you recommend? And and, and he told me some of, the, some of the wacky issues that he was seeing and experiencing, and, and, uh, but he said, it's the best thing I can find. And, and, and so where we landed was I said, hey, man, just, just make sure they're getting the gospel right. 
At the end of the day, uh, do, they, do they preach the gospel clearly and accurately? And if you can have the confidence that they get the gospel, then I think you'll be okay at that church, even though they might have a woman teaching from time to time, or they may do, do a little something different with baptism, and they may do a little something different with this, but make sure they're getting the gospel right. So the gospel is accurately, unashamedly proclaimed. Thirdly, God's word is faithfully and authoritatively preached. God's word is faithfully and authoritatively preached. Again, back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We see the first thing that the early church was devoted to was what? The apostles' teaching. Or another way to say that is sound doctrine. They were committed, they were devoted to studying the scriptures, to learning the scriptures. I love what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, passing on the baton of, of ministry to, to, uh, to, to Timothy, his young disciple, and Paul was about to die. This is sort of a deathbed plea to, to Timothy to prioritize the preaching of the word of God. And it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's a very helpful passage to apply to a church when you're kicking the tires. What's going on in the pulpit? Because the pulpit is the rudder of the church. And whichever direction the pulpit goes, the entire church goes. And every ministry in the church goes in that same direction. The preaching controls what happens in the nursery and in the children's ministry and the student ministry and the adult ministry and the senior citizens ministry. Everything flows out of this pulpit. And so if the preaching is shallow and designed to tell people what they want to hear, that's going to just trickle down into every other ministry in the life of the church. I think you know as well as I do, a lot goes on in the name of preaching today, which is nothing more than positive pep talks and topical sermons necessarily that maybe with lots of jokes and stories and practical tips for a better life. The Bible is treated like a self-help manual. Verses are ripped out of context and used by the speaker to make his point, which may not be necessarily God's point. I've heard some great sermons in my day that I totally agreed with. It's just not what that passage was saying. <laughs> That's not what that passage was saying. You can find that message other places, but that's not what that passage was saying. And so when you're checking out a church, really practically, I think the first thing you should do, it starts when you're 
when you get out of your car and you start walking through the parking lot to get to church and look around and see if people are carrying their Bibles. I mean, that, right, right then and there, that you, you could tell a whole lot about a church if you see a bunch of people walking in with a Bible under their arm. Or maybe there's no Bibles. I'll never forget when R.C. Sproul came to the convention center in Conroe. I think all of us were shocked going, what in the world? R.C. Sproul in Conroe, Texas? And the masses came out. All the Reformed Christians, right? Hey, we're going to go hear R.C. Sproul. And I'll never forget Tyler Jacobs and I went over there one night, that, the night he was speaking, and we got rolled in there in Tyler's pickup truck and got out. And I'll never forget looking around the parking lot. And people didn't just have their Bibles. They had like study guides and notebooks and briefcases. And they're just like walking in to hear R.C. Sproul. Man, they were loaded for bear. And I was like, I think, I told Tyler, I said, I think we found all the serious Christians. Here they are, walking in this parking lot to go hear R.C.'s roll. Another question, or another thing you should look for is, during the sermon, do you notice that people spend more time looking down at their Bibles or looking up at a screen or looking around at other things? Are they looking down? In other words, do you have to use your Bible? Do you hear a lot of this? That was one of my favorite things at Grace Community Church there for 10 years whenever Pastor MacArthur would say, now turn over here in the Bible and, and, and to, hear, to, to just listen to 3,500 people turning pages in the Bible was just awesome. Why? Because people were hungry for the word and they were being good Bereans and saying, we're not just going to believe it because John MacArthur said, we're going to believe it because the Bible said it. God said it in his word. So if you don't need a Bible, or you can't follow along in your Bible, then it's safe to assume that the sermons are not coming from the Bible. Biblical preaching is is based solely on the Bible, and the main goal of the preacher should be to explain the meaning of a particular passage in its historical and grammatical context that's That's basically saying what the original writer was saying to the original audience he was writing to and then show how that original meaning applies to the present day audience. That's the job of a preacher. That's what you should be hearing when you go to church. And it should be done with authority. Titus chapter 2 verse 15, Paul said to Titus, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, preaching should not come across as a nice guy up front making some suggestions for your life. It's as if God was exhorting and commanding you to do these things. I love what Donald Whitney said in his book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. He's got a chapter, again, I quoted from it already, Uh, in a previous message, why listen to preaching in the church? And this is what he said. Quote, you should attend a church where you can consistently hear biblical preaching. You need to avoid a church where the preaching does not clearly come from the Bible. Sometimes the preacher announces a text but never really comes back to it and or makes only passing references to any of the verses from the Bible. The kind of church you want to be a part of is one where when the Bible is read at the beginning of the sermon, you can be confident that what follows will be built upon it. 
God made our hearts, and only he knows what we need most, and he made our hearts for the word of God. Nothing nourishes us like his message. Your soul will only be fed from God's word. Without it, you will be undernourished and suffer from spiritual starvation. Keep your distance from a church that minimizes preaching or substitutes other things for it. You don't need a church like this, regardless of how good its other programs are or how many friends you have there or how well your children like it. Make sure your family will consistently hear what will save them and build them up. It's great advice. And so God's word is to be faithfully and authoritatively preached. Number four, the leadership is to be properly and recognizably qualified. The leadership is to be properly and recognizably qualified. Again, some verses we've looked at before and already in this series, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul is addressing the elders in the church in Ephesus. This is his final farewell to them before he heads on his way to Rome. Um, Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples after, draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. In other words... Guard your heart, guys. Even as Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 16, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Paul was warning them that some of you are going to defect from the faith. You're going to divide this church over false doctrine. You're going to lead people astray. And so it's important that whoever is in the leadership of a local church is biblically qualified, and we have a very clear list of qualifications given to us by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He has a list of character qualities, essentially, for elders and deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. In other words, their, their character is recognizable, it's testable. And then, of course, in 1 Peter 5, we have a great description of, of the, the heart and the role of, of an elder. 1 Peter chapter 5, 
Peter's writing to the elders and says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not out of compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Again, this is the heart of a shepherd and this is what you need to discern. This is what you need to research. This is what you need to find out. I, um, I appreciated the chapter in Spiritual Disciplines within the church. Whitney calls it why you should research the church. That before you ever join a church, you need to, you need to do your homework. You need to research that church. You need to check it out online and read everything you can find, get their documents and, and, and sit down, talk to the members and even sit down with the pastor or the elders and ask them some tough questions about what they believe and about certain things and how they deal with certain situations. I think some of us are just, you know, kind of willy-nilly. And, oh, it's, it sounds like it's good. They got a good church. They got nice facilities. You know, they have nice music, nice people. His sermons are bearable. I, like, seriously, you know, you got to know. You're getting married here. You better know who you're marrying. And so the idea is that you research these things. Well, what do you research? Well, you really need to take a close look at the leadership of the church. And it's extremely important that the leadership of a church is set up according to the pattern laid out in the New Testament. And what we see, uh, based on the example of the early church, that that we can conclude that it was God's intention that the leadership of every local church should consist of two basic offices. You've got elders and you've got deacons, and the elders are entrusted with the overall pastoral oversight of the church, and the deacons come alongside the elders and assist them in meeting all the physical and material and financial needs of the church, and, 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 and all that to free up the elders to fulfill their spiritual priority to preach to and to pray for the flock, Acts chapter 6, verse 4. And so God entrusts a team to, to a team of elders and deacons his authority to oversee every aspect of a local body of believers, which includes the doctrine and the staff and the ministry and the money. I mean, these are sensitive matters. This is a great responsibility, and it requires great integrity. And ultimately, a church leader should not be evaluated primarily based on their leadership abilities, their communication skills, but they should be judged by the character of their lives. That's what you should care about when you're joining a church, not that, oh, he's a gifted preacher. Or he's a great leader. Man, they're really well organized. They got it going on here. Well, what's going on in their hearts? You need to care about their character. Now, obviously, there's no perfect pastors or elders or deacons, but you need to find some guys that you are confident are humble servant leaders. That's their heart who you can support and submit to and whose example you can follow. That's what you need. That's the criteria for finding a church. The leadership is properly and recognizably qualified. And then finally, another criteria is that church discipline is regularly and lovingly practiced. Church discipline is regularly and lovingly practiced. Now, we've, we've talked about this. This was one glaring omission from this series. It's 10 weeks. How can you go 10 weeks talking about the church and never mention 
anything about church discipline? Well, we know Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus clearly laid out how to go about rescuing a lost sheep. It's in the context of having a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, one uh, goes astray, you leave the 99 and you go search for that one and when you find it, you rejoice over it. And so the, so the point is that this is God's will, this is the Father's will when it comes to the church, that if one of us strays, the rest of us go out after us. And if your brother sins, you go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he's not listened to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to them, even, even to the church, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And by the way, that doesn't just apply to the sheep. It also applies to the shepherds. This whole concept of, of biblical restoration, confrontation and restoration. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, that's the key, they didn't repent, they continue in their sin. Rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. In other words, don't, don't somehow treat the leaders with favoritism. In fact, they should be held to an even higher standard. And then in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Reject the factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. We have this concept here of church discipline. And it's very rare for someone looking for a church to go to to inquire whether it practices church discipline. Rarely do I get asked that question. I get asked lots of good questions, but I've never got asked, hey, does this church practice, you know, Matthew 18? And if they did ask that question, they'd have a hard time finding a church to go to because fewer and fewer churches are committed to doing this, following these biblical principles, these steps to restore people to a right relationship with God and others. I mentioned Joshua Harris's book, Why Church Matters, in that little chapter, Choosing a Church. My favorite point is this. this is, he says, this is number nine. Number nine, he's giving you 10 questions to ask to determine whether you should go to this church. Number nine, is this a church that's willing to kick me out? It's a great question. He goes on, when a person who claims to be a Christian lives in a way that blatantly contradicts all that it means to be a disciple of Christ, a faithful church's responsibility is to begin the process of removing that person from membership and to treat him or her like an unbeliever in the hope that he or she will repent and ultimately be restored. He asks the question, why should you be excited about the potential of being expelled from a church? He said, I gain a wonderful sense of protection knowing that if I committed a scandalous sin and showed no repentance, my church wouldn't put up with it. They would plead with me to change. They would patiently confront me with God's word. And eventually, if I refused to change, they would lovingly kick me out. He says, so look for a church that will not only welcome you into membership, but will lovingly hold you to your commitment as a Christian, a church that will love you enough to put you out of fellowship for the good of your soul. So these are some biblical priorities. Biblical criteria, standards of a good church. Just to make it simple, you could just ask five questions as you research 
a church to seek to discern if you should join it. Question number one, are the members truly saved? Number two, is the gospel accurately proclaimed? Number three, is God's word faithfully preached? Number four, is the leadership biblically qualified? Number five, is is church discipline regularly practiced? There's a few more questions you could ask yourself to diagnose whether or not you should join a particular church. There's a great little book by Mark Dever, What is a Healthy Church? It's a, just a summary version of his Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, if you're familiar with that. This is, uh, this is the, the quick read version. Get this one, okay? It's got some good stuff in it. But he has uh, quick tips how to find a church. He says, ask yourself diagnose, diagnostic questions such as, would I want to find a spouse who has been brought up under this church's teaching? That's a good question. What picture of Christianity will my children see in this church? Something distinct or something a lot like the world? Would I be happy to invite non-Christians to this church? That is, would they clearly hear the gospel and see lives consistent with it? And then he says this, consider geography. Would the church's physical proximity to your home encourage or discourage frequent involvement in service? In other words, you might have found a great church, but it's just in the wrong place. Right church, wrong place. I can't really get involved in this church and benefit from that church because I just live too far away. You say, well, what if I can't find a church where I live? Well, join the best one you can find. And humbly and joyfully serve there and ask God to use you to help it change and grow to be more in line with the scriptures. And if that doesn't work, then maybe you need to be part of starting a new church or maybe you need to move so you can go to a solid church. That's a novel thought. I mean, we move all all the time for better jobs and better schools for our kids, better quality of life or health. Why wouldn't we also move to go to a better church? To enjoy a better spiritual health. I met a couple last week, just this last week in the foyer, that they moved down here not having a home, a job, but they knew about our church. And so they thought, okay, we got a good church we can go to, now we just got to find a job and a house. (laughs) I love to hear testimonies like that. People who prioritize their spiritual lives by moving to a a new city to go to a a new church, even though they don't have a job, they don't have a house. Now, obviously, there needs to be wisdom applied in that situation. I'm sure that new church won't appreciate you living in their foyer. Hey, I'm I'm here. Take care of me. Um, Now, having said all that, if these biblical criteria are missing in a church, then I would say, I would be as bold to say that that is a disobedient church and a church that's dishonoring to God. And it's a, it's a bad church that needs to be avoided or escaped. In other words, if a, if a church is filled with a bunch of unbelievers or the gospel is being distorted or it's not completely, com- completely submitted to the authority of the word of God or the leadership's not qualified or sin is allowed to go unchecked, then it's a bad church and you shouldn't want to have anything to do with it. You say, Ken, you're being pretty condescending, pretty harsh here. Well, I'm thinking about the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, and there was one church in particular that made Christ sick to his stomach. It said it made him want to throw up. 
I think we can consider that a bad church if it made Jesus want to puke. So the question is, how do you leave a bad church? We talked about finding a good church. How do you leave a bad church? And this is not as long, so just hang tight with me here for a second because maybe this is worth the price of the ticket this morning because you kind of knew some of that stuff about finding a church. It's kind of um, obvious. But how about leaving a church? Well, since joining a church these days is no big deal, many think leaving a church is no big deal either. It's easy come, easy go. And unfortunately, we see that happen here at Lakeside. People kind of just blow into town and like, hey, let's join. Oh, this is great. Let's go through. And we do everything we can to get them through membership. And we try to follow all the steps. And they, they look excited. And then like six months later, it's like, hey, where's that couple go? And you call them up. Oh, we decided to go to another church. I'm like, wait a minute. You went through the entire membership process and, and you committed, you covenanted with us and, 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 you, and you just left? See, what's lacking today is people don't realize that joining a church is a, is a serious thing. It's, it's something that you could liken to getting married. Josh Harris's book, before it was called Why Church Matters, it was called Stop Dating the Church. Marry it. Commit to it. And, and so you covenant with other members of a church, and when you do that, then leaving a church or divorcing a church, if you're marrying the church on the front end, you're thinking, okay, this is like I'm getting married here. Well, then when you're leaving, it's like, hey, this is like a divorce. And that must be taken very seriously as well. Now, I've just started doing this in recent years, and I think it freaks our new members out because the last day of the class, Life at Lakeside class, that's the day they're ready to come down front and stand up here and covenant with us. And, and I say, hey, now let, let me talk about, the last thing I want to talk to you about how to leave a church. And they, they kind of, you know, the deer or the, the uh, you know, dog cocking his head when he hears something strange. It's like, this seems so counterintuitive. Why are you, we're just about to join a church and you're telling us how to leave a church. I don't get that. Well, again, it's the elephant on the couch. It's the elephant in the room. Let's talk about it. Be like, <laughs> I guess, right before the guy's, the couple's ready to get married, I pull them aside and say, hey, now let me tell you what happens if this, this, this thing doesn't work out. They're ready to walk down the aisle. Let's, let's talk about if things don't work out. Like, what are you talking about? Well, in the same way, again, this is my personal conviction about grounds for divorce. I believe there are two biblical grounds for divorce. Adultery, Matthew 19, abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7. I also believe there are two biblical grounds for leaving a church. What are they? What would be the two biblical grounds for leaving a church? I would say they're heresy, number one, and hypocrisy, number two. Heresy and hypocrisy. So whenever a church starts to do and say things that don't line up with the Bible, in other words, they're teaching false doctrine or failing to adorn sound doctrine by the way that people are living their lives, particularly the leadership, then it may be time to leave. But first, you need to fulfill your biblical responsibility to lovingly and respectfully confront the leadership, Share your concerns, point out the heresy, point out the hypocrisy in hopes that they'll see it and repent of it. 
And if they refuse to change, then I believe you're free to leave that church with a clear conscience. But just because you're leaving a church for the right reason, make sure you don't leave it in the wrong way. That's sometimes the bigger issue, right? Don't just disappear. I mean, am I really that scary to talk to? Hey, pastor, can I just speak to you for a few minutes? Hey, my wife and I, were thinking or whatever, we're, we're, we're just thinking God's moving us on. Hey, that's great. But apparently that's a scary conversation. People don't want to have that, and so they just disappear, and we're like, hey, where'd so-and-so go? You hear from them? No, I didn't hear from them. Don't just disappear. Don't be vindictive or divisive. Don't, don't look for a way to stab the church in the back on the way out or kick them you know, on your way out kind of thing. You know, don't do that. Don't be vindictive. Don't be divisive. Seek to leave as humbly, graciously, and peaceably as possible. Apply Ephesians 4, 2, and 3 with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God hates it when people stir up strife and cause divisions in the body of Christ. Again, Dever, in the What is a Healthy Church, he says, here's some quick tips if you're thinking about leaving a church. He said, before you decide to leave, pray. Number two, let your current pastor know about your thinking before you move to another church or make your decision to relocate to another city. Ask for his counsel. Three, weigh your motives. Is your desire to leave because of sinful personal conflict or disappointment? If it's because of doctrinal reasons, are these doctrinal issues significant? Number four, do everything within your power to reconcile any broken relationships. And then lastly, be humble. Recognize that you don't have all the facts and assess people and circumstances charitably. You may think you know about a situation. Boy, they totally messed that up. They, they, they didn't handle that thing right. Well, do you know all the details? Probably not. He says, if you go, don't divide the body. Take the utmost care not to sow discontent even among your closest friends. Remember that you don't want anything to hinder their growth in grace in this church. Deny any desire to gossip, sometimes referred to as venting or telling people how you feel. Pray for and bless the congregation as leadership. If there's been hurt, then forgive, even as you've been forgiven. That's really all I care about when somebody comes to me and says, hey, you know, pastor, I think you know, God's moving us on. And, you know, obviously if it's for a work-related thing or family-related thing or health-related, we say, hey, that's, we totally understand. Let's help you find another church. But even it's like, hey, you know, we just feel like God's moving us on to a different church. And I'm like, hey, that's great. I, need, I just have to ask one question. Is there anything we've said or done that has hurt you or offended you that we can make right with you? Because I don't want anybody leaving with a root of bitterness in their heart because that's not going to help them at all as they go down the road to a new church. They think they're really leaving the problems behind when they're really bringing the problem with them because they're part of the problem. <laughs> And so I want to make sure that we're truly recon reconciled and there's no unresolved issues and there's no loose ends blowing in the breeze. And again, we have to always keep in mind, beloved, listen, <laughs> there is no perfect church. 
And the reason churches have problems is because people have problems. <laughs> and the reason why there's imperfect churches is because there's imperfect people in those churches. Imperfect people make imperfect churches. But as imperfect as the church is, it is still the dearest place on earth. I read Spurgeon's quote at the beginning of this series, and I want to end with this series. This is from a a sermon that Spurgeon preached to his congregation in London. He said this, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had ever joined, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. And then he says this, still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. As we move into the book of Philippians, we're going to see at the very beginning of that letter, Paul made this promise to the Philippians, to the Christians in Philippi, but also to the church in Philippi. He said this in Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will, what? Perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What's the implication? That there were some imperfections in the lives of of those Christians. In Philippi, there were some imperfections in that church, and God was faithfully working on those imperfections, and He's faithfully working on our imperfections, and will finally make us perfect when Christ returns to get His precious bride, the church. And on that day, all of our spots will be instantly washed away, all our wrinkles will be completely ironed out. And we will stand before him in all our glory, holy and blameless with great joy, and will praise and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how practical it is when we talk about sensitive subjects like finding a church and leaving a church. And Lord, I pray that... um, this message would be received well with the intention in which it was preached to be helpful, not hurtful. And Lord, that this would be an encouragement and a a comfort to to this body. Lord, I just pray you just give us wisdom to apply these these principles as we uh, go about our lives and as you move us around in your kingdom and you transplant us to different parts of your vineyard and we go from church to church, Lord, that we'd always be a blessing to the churches that you direct us to, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.